Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages podcast. This is episode 38, Sons of the Vandal. And we're back. That was a longer break than I had originally planned, so thank everyone for your patience, and thank you all for coming back to me. I've missed you all, individually and personally, and not in an at all creepy way. Thanks to everyone who wished me a happy vacation. The trip, which was also called the Magical History Tour, was a complete success. I am currently trying to figure out how to make moving to Williamsburg possible so that I can just work at the historical park and spend every weekend at Water Country, USA. But a girl can dream. I mentioned before I left that I was going to be making some changes to the way I do things that will hopefully make things run smoother around here. The only one of those that you'll notice should be the numbering of episodes. I have abandoned the idea of seasons and will simply be numbering episodes sequentially. It just makes better sense and is easier for me to keep track of. I have gone back and renumbered all the previous episodes, which you may have noticed, uh, what with the accidental reposting of episode 4, The Sack of Rome, if that caused some confusion. Sorry about that. All the other changes I'm going to make, or have made, are behind the scenes and shouldn't affect your experience of the show. Well, episodes might be slightly shorter on average, but hopefully with, they'll come with greater regularity to make up for that. But you do not come for personal ramblings or for inside baseball. You come for Barbarian Kings and Kingdoms. And for today, we have a bulk deal of four new kings for the price of one. Today's episode is kind of a continuation of the last episode, bringing us up to date with what's been happening in the Vandal Kingdom between 476 and the death of Theodoric the Great in 526. We really haven't checked in with the Vandals much since Gaiseric kicked the Roman governor out of Carthage and set up his kingdom. That means that we have got 50 years of material to catch up on. That is one of the reasons I separated this episode from the Magical Tour. The other is that I wanted this information to be relatively fresh from everyone in everyone's mind as we head into the next series of episodes, since we are heading into the Wars of Justinian, and facts on the ground in Africa are going to be very relevant. I want to begin with a quick reminder about the geography of the region. Moving from west to east in North Africa, we talked already about Mauritania in the last episode. Gaiseric, that first and greatest of Vandal kings, maintained nominal sovereignty over the region, but the distances involved meant that his influence was very weak, and it eroded away quickly under his successors. Moving further east, the first section of Africa proper that we encounter is Numidia, which is centered on Hippo Regius in modern Algeria. The land was fertile and pretty heavily settled by Vandal landholders, especially in its eastern half. The center of the kingdom, though, Africa Proconsularis, contained mighty Carthage with its great port and was by far the wealthiest part of Africa. It maps more or less onto the northern half of modern Tunisia with a slice of Algeria thrown in. This was the beating economic heart of the Vandal Kingdom, and the area where the Vandal settlement and was most concentrated. Moving on south from there into what would become southern Tunisia, we find the region of Byzacena. Vandal settlements thin out completely as we move south, with only a few garrisons stationed in these outlying areas. 
and lastly along the coast of modern Libya, the strip of land called Tripolitania, centered on, guess where, the city of Tripoli. It hardly contained any vandals at all, and is bound to Carthage mainly by fear of interference and the lack of any other strong authority in the region. I have put together a map of the cities of North Africa, which is available on the website at www.darkagespod.com or on Instagram, darkagespod. The Vandals' great king, Gaiseric, outlasted the empire in the west by a few months. He had spent the last two years of his life shoring up his position and planning for the future. A peace treaty with Constantinople in 474 ensured security from that direction for the moment. He had ensured the stability of his own reign by promoting lower-ranking Vandal families into important positions, bypassing and thereby undercutting the traditional nobility. After more than 40 years in power, that policy had created a, an elite caste that was wholly loyal to Gaiseric and ensured stability within the Vandal community. Relations with the native Roman population? Much less so. Gaiseric didn't have the advantage of a Liberius or a Cassiodorus, as Theodoric did. There was no talented Roman administrator willing to cross the line to aid the Vandal takeover. Or, alternatively, the Vandal elites were unwilling to allow the conquered people that much prestige in the new order. It may have been a combination of both. Either way, the land redistribution from Roman to Vandal elites was much more contentious than in Italy, partly because Africa contained less imperial land that could be divvied up. The religious differences between newcomers and natives were also more difficult. While Theodoric's religious policy was largely live and let live, the policy of the Vandal kings was, in general, much more hard-line. Gaiseric himself seems to have mainly invoked religious differences when he was seeking to punish subjects who were politically difficult. But as we will see, several of his successors were much more ideologically motivated and sought to actively promote their Arianism at the expense of the Catholic majority. Remember that the Vandal kingdom and its army are essentially the same thing. Roman subjects bore little to no loyalty to their new rulers, and the Vandals' aggressive Arianism seems to have kept the two communities even more segregated than was the case in the Ostrogothic kingdom. Also, the Vandal army was mainly settled in the extremely rich areas, as I've said, of eastern Numidia and Africa Proconsularis. Byzacena and Tripolitania, as already noted, were very lightly garrisoned. The greatest strength of the Vandal kingdom lay in its control of the sea. No other western power could compete with the fleet that Gaiseric had inherited when he took over the provinces. He wisely maintained that fleet, and did everything he could to prevent others from threatening his control of the western med. You remember how the Roman fleet put together by Majorian to take Africa back was surprised and burned in the harbor. The eastern empire was the only entity with the resources to mount a serious challenge, and after their defeat at the Battle of Cape Bon, that threat was put to bed for nearly a hundred years. The Germanic successor states in the west certainly could not raise navies on the scale that would be needed for such an invasion, so there would be no need to worry about Visigoths or Franks, and while eventually the Ostrogoths might be capable of action in Sicily, they would never be able to attack Africa directly. Geopolitically, then, the Vandal King's main concerns were the Moorish tribes in the mountains and deserts, the Eastern Empire, and the internal discontent. By the time of his death in January of 477, nearly 90 years old, Gaiseric had ruled the Vandals for almost 50 years. He had transformed their fortunes and remade their society. 
Few of his people would have been able to remember a time without him, but they knew that he had taken them from a wandering tribe with little power or prospect, and made them into a power that could sack and humble Rome itself, and that had to be considered and included in the calculations of all the other players in the Mediterranean. Gaiseric was the Vandal, revered in life and after death a nearly religious figure. Who could replace such a king? He had a plan, which he made very clear before his death. The kingdom would remain in the hands of his clan, the Hasdings, but would not pass from father to son in a single line. He instituted a system that we call now agnatic seniority. The eldest of his sons would inherit the throne, and when he died, his eldest brother would take over, or whatever, whoever was the eldest of Gaiseric's descendants would take over. The exact line of descent was irrelevant in this system. It was a variation on the Germanic principle of election from a noble pool, which avoided the dangerous periods that the Romans had suffered when their emperor was a minor, but kept the Hasdings in power. The system meant that there would always be a man with experience in power. Whether he would be a wise one, well, we'll just have to see, won't we? Gaiseric had three surviving sons, Hunneric, Theodoric, I know, and Genzen. Hunneric was the eldest, and so the brass ring was his. Thanks to his father's extraordinary longevity, Hunneric was over 50 years old when he ascended the throne. He was married to Eudoxia, who you might remember was the daughter of Valentinian III, and had been taken captive during the sack of Rome in 455. Thanks to our entirely external sources, we don't know much about his life, Hunneric's life, before the kingship. What we do know, in very emphatic terms, is that Hunneric was entirely committed to his people's ancestral faith. Gaiseric had used religion as a tool to keep power out of the hands of the disloyal and to bind his own people closer together. Hunneric, by contrast, seems to have been a true believer, and in spite of that, he started off making some positive gestures toward Roman Catholicism, including allowing the election of a new bishop of Carthage. The see had been vacant for 24 years, and it only lasted a few years, though. Perhaps pushed by what he saw as the continuing disloyalty and ingratitude of this population, he set about promoting Arianism and denigrating and persecuting Catholicism with a fervor that Gaiseric probably would have cautioned against. By Gaiseric's decree, when Hunneric died, he would be succeeded by his brother Theodoric. Hunneric swore to uphold his father's wishes, and he held to that oath right up until the minute his father died. Tell me you didn't see that coming. Hunneric called a meeting of his brothers and made a reasoned and impassioned argument that his own son, Hilderic, should inherit the throne. I'm kidding. Of course he didn't do that. Instead, he violently suppressed his brother's family and supporters. Theodoric's wife and eldest son were executed. Theodoric himself was sent into exile and died while he was away. Nobles who supported the unfortunate brother were executed as well. Not even the Arian clergy was immune, as Hunneric amply demonstrated when he ordered the Arian patriarch of Carthay burned at the stake for his support of Theodoric. Hunneric felt free to focus on these internal opponents because of his strong international position, which he had been left by his father. All the same, from that point, this point on, the borders of Vandal Africa began to contract. Moorish tribes raided deeper and deeper into the settled territories, and found smaller and smaller garrisons to oppose them. During the conquest, Gaiseric had demolished the walls of all the African towns except for Carthage. 
that denied strongholds to potential rebels, but the trade-off was obvious, as outlying settlements were much more vulnerable to Moorish attack. It would have more long-term consequences too, but we'll get to those. Toward the end of his time in power, the Moorish kingdom in Arras successfully broke free from his control, and I mentioned that one in the last episode. It may be overstating it to call Hunneric's time on the throne a reign of terror. If you were outside of the targeted groups, life probably seemed pretty much to carry on as normal after Gaiseric died. But be that as it may, it all ended suddenly, when Hunneric died without warning in 484. He was in his late 50s or early 60s and had been king of the Vandals for seven tumultuous years. Thanks to his strenuous efforts to secure the throne for his son, Hunneric was succeeded by his nephew Gunthamund, son of Genzen. Womp womp. Gunthamund's reign is extremely poorly recorded. What we can say for sure is that he seems to have eased off on the religious persecution. Why isn't clear. He was certainly just as much an Aryan as Hunneric had been. It may simply have been down to the general antipathy to everything his uncle had done. There is some evidence that zealous Aryan clergy may have carried on a persecutant on their own initiative, and Gunthamund did very little to stop. It was during Gunthamund's reign that Theodoric overthrew Odoacer. Gunthamund moved to take advantage of the chaos in Italy by launching an attack to increase Vandal territory in Sicily. We know very little about how that campaign played out, but... The upshot was, not well for the Vandals. The Vandals were driven off the island completely, giving the Ostrogoths the resources they would need to maintain their kingdom, which we've already heard about so much. The mysterious reign of the mysterious Gunthamund ended mysteriously in September of 496, when he died. It's not known exactly how old he was when he died, and he had ruled the Vandals mysteriously for about 12 years. There was no fiddle-faddle with the succession this time. Gunthamund's brother Thrasimund became the next king of the Vandals, just as Gaiseric would have wanted. Thrasimund was another true believer. He believed in the Arian creed and believed that other Christians were in error. Nonetheless, his religious policy was less brutal repression and more coerced conversion. He seemed to want sincere converts to Arianism, and there were some who did so because they truly believed the creed had won the argument. It's impossible to say how many Romans converted to Arianism during the Vandals' rule. It was enough to be concerning to the Catholic Church at large, though. Some probably converted to avoid persecution, others to find advancement, and a few may have genuinely changed their minds. Thrasimund offered incentives for conversion, tax relief or official positions, for example, and the rate of conversion during his reign increased. Let's not get carried away, though. Arians were still very much in the minority. While he held out that carrot with one hand, his other hand still kept a stick hidden behind his back. Catholic bishops who made themselves a nuisance would be exiled and not replaced. Those who passed on were also not replaced. The general policy of attrition worked its way through the Catholic hierarchy to the point nearly of crisis. In 508, 60 bishoprics around Africa defied the royal ban on elections and elected new bishops. All 60 were rounded up and shipped off to Sardinia, which was still Vandal territory. Sardinia was far enough away to keep these churchmen from making trouble for Carthage, but also far enough away that Carthage had very little practical control over them. With these 60 and the dozens that had come before them, Thrasimund thus unintentionally established the island as a center for Christian thought. The community even produced a pope, Symmachus, who was one of the popes involved in the Acacian Schism. 
Oddly, while suppressing bishops and priests, Thrasimund left monasteries alone. Several new ones were founded, and old ones grew in size and influence during his reign. We'll talk about the growing phenomenon of monasticism sometime in the relatively near future. You will remember that Theodoric the Great sought to create a web of alliances to keep his kingdom safe and spread his influence throughout the Germanic kingdoms. I talked about this, and talked about this, and talked about this, of course, and here we are again. In 493, Amalafrida, the widowed sister of the Ostrogothic king, arrived in Carthage and married King Thrasimund. As a dowry, she brought the port of Lilibaeum on the very western tip of Sicily. She was also accompanied by 5,000 soldiers. Last time we talked about this, I had suggested these men were here as an implicit threat to keep Thrasimund in line, and that's one interpretation that can be found in the scholarship. There are problems with this, though. How could the commander of these soldiers communicate effectively with Theodoric, which would necess be necessary for any kind of action to work in a timely way? It's possible that Amalafrida was well enough acquainted with her brother's mind to act as his representative to them, I suppose. There's a few lines in Cassiodorus's letters that suggest that she was well-versed in Ostrogothic policies and prepared to offer her opinion when asked. When Thrasimund warmly received the exiled Visigothic prince Gesalic, he received a diplomatic earful from Theodoric, including the rebuke, quote, We are sure that you cannot have taken counsel in this matter with your wife, who would neither have liked to see her brother injured nor, any, nor the fair fame of her husband tarnished by such doubtful intrigues. End quote. The glimpses offered of Amalafrida, fleeting though they are, give the impression of a woman who was well aware of her own position and confident in her opinions, so she may have been able to command those 5,000 soldiers a bit. An alternative view, though, makes the gift of these 5,000 seem like a much more altruistic gesture, but to explain that, I will need to tell you about the revolt of Cabayon. Cabayon was a Moorish chieftain whose homeland was Tripolitania. This easternmost of the Vandals' territories occupies the narrow coastal strip of western Libya. Cabayon put together a coalition of tribes, we don't know whether by diplomacy or coercion or both, and launched a rebellion against Thrasimund's rule there. Procopius, the historian that we will talk about in a little bit, describes Cabayon ordering some pretty first-rate intelligence work. When he heard that Thrasimund was assembling an army to move against him, he sent spies to shadow their movements, and knowing the Arians' general disdain for their Catholic subjects, he ordered his agents to observe any actions the Vandals took against Catholic settlements along their route, and once they had left, his spies were to approach these settlements and do the opposite of what the Vandals had. The Vandals did not disappoint. Procopius tells us that they, quote, led their horses and their other animals into the temples of the Christians, and sparing no insult, they acted with all the unrestrained lawlessness natural to them, beating as many priests as they could catch, and lashing them with many blows over the back, and commanding them to render such service to the Vandals as they were accustomed to assign the most dishonored of their domestics. End quote. Once they left, the Moors appeared, and, quote, straightway cleansed the sanctuaries, and took away with great care the filth and whatever other unholy thing lay in them. And they lighted all the lamps, and bowed down to the priests with great reverence, and saluted them with all friendliness, and after, giving pieces of silver to the poor who sat about these sanctuaries. End quote. It was both excellent intelligence work, as Cabayan learned the disposition of the Thrasimund's army, and a lovely demonstration of soft power. 
On a tangentially related note, if anyone's in Washington, D.C. or headed there soon, the International Spirit Museum is one of the best I've ever been to. Where was I? The Vandals had, for their entire history, been a cavalry army who fought with lance and sword at close quarters. It had worked for them for 200 years, so why should they change it? Cabayon knew this. He also knew that horses are not at all fond of camels. Did you know that? Apparently, they really hate the way camels smell. And you know what? I can't really blame them. Knowing that, Cabayon prepared for battle. His intelligence operation meant that he could choose his field, and he found a nice, flat, open plain. Normally, that would have been to the Vandals' advantage, but Cabayon arranged his baggage and camp followers in the middle of the plain and surrounded them with every camel he could get his hands on, all tied together in an enormous circle. Between each of the camels, he placed his army on foot, with large shields and armed with bows, javelins, and slings. When the vandals came upon this extraordinary arrangement, their horses shied away from the camels and their stench, and the vandals' riders couldn't get close. They circled the Moorish position, all the time being peppered with projectiles, and every now and then a rider might overcome his mount's reluctance and manage to charge toward the enemy, but lone men or small groups only made themselves targets for concentrated fire and were quickly killed or driven back. As men and horses fell, the vandals' courage wavered, and they soon turned and fled. When Cabayon saw that, he allowed his men to mount up and give chase, and as was always the rule, the greatest slaughter came as the routing men were chased down and killed. We have no numbers for this battle. But Procopius tells us that an exceedingly small number of Vandal fighting men returned to Carthage. Cabion's success inspired other Moorish tribes to rise in revolt. The rebellion became general, and soon Thrasimund was forced to evacuate the farmers from the southern part of Byzacena. We don't have a good chronology for this war. In other words, we don't know exactly what years it happened. In Procopius's narrative, it seems to come latish in Thrasimund's reign, but it may have been much earlier. It's therefore possible that this defeat led Thrasimund to seek military aid from Theodoric the Great, and that those 5,000 men that came with Amalafrida were intended to shore up Vandal strength while the native army recovered. It's certainly a more positive spin to put on the wedding deal. The lack of chronological clarity also means that I don't have a nice resolution to this story. After the battle, Procopius makes no further mention of Cabayan, and we don't know what ultimately happened to him. So it goes. In spite of that setback, Thrasimund was accounted the most powerful Vandal king since Gaiseric, in part because of his good relationship with Theodoric and with the East, especially Emperor Anastasius. These two relationships were often at odds with each other, and Thrasimund failed to come to Theodoric's aid when imperial forces were raiding his coasts, which in turn prevented Theodoric from aiding the Visigoths against the Franks. Thrasimund died in 523, at the ripe old age of 73 or so, having ruled the Vandal kingdom mostly successfully for 27 years, longer than any king other than his grandfather, Gaiseric. The succession passed, at last, to Hilderic, the eldest son of Hunneric, finally rising to the position his father had wanted for him so badly. Turns out he just had to wait 39 years. But we're going to let Hilderic stew for another day, though. Instead, I'm going to use my remaining time to introduce our primary source for this period, and pretty much the only historical source for the Vandal Kings, and for much else besides. I've already said his name, but now let's have an official welcome for Procopius of Caesarea.
It will do us good to thoroughly introduce Procopius because he's one of the most important sources for the reign of Justinian specifically, and for much of the 6th century in general, and we will be referring to him probably about as often as we used to refer to old Jordanes. We're not done with Jordanes, by the way, oh my no. Procopius was born around the year 500 and was raised in Caesarea Maritima, which is in Palestine. Today it's the center of an Israeli national park, but in Roman times it was a provincial capital and a major port. His family was of senatorial rank, so he received a thorough education in the standard curriculum, rhetoric, grammar, and logic. He went on then to study law, possibly in Beirut, which was famous for its law school at the time. Like most individuals, we can't say much else about his early education and background beyond that, but in 527 Procopius got his career-making break. He was appointed as legal advisor to a general, who we will come to know very well, whose name was Belisarius. Belisarius was one of a handful of young military commanders who surrounded the newly minted emperor, Justinian, and he would become by far the most famous. I'm not going to go into Belisarius's career now, since much of it will form the meat of the upcoming episodes, but Procopius accompanied him on most of them. He wrote detailed and vivid accounts of the wars and campaigns that he both saw and heard about, and collected them into a single work, which we now call The Wars, which is sometimes broken down into its constituent parts, the Persian Wars, the Vandal Wars, and the Gothic Wars. Uh, spoilers, I guess. In addition to those, two other works survive. Buildings is a panegyric praising the many ambitious construction projects undertaken by Justinian, and its polar opposite work, The Anecdota, which sounds like anecdotes, but is usually translated as The Secret History. In The Secret History, Procopius really cuts loose. While some of the wars and most of buildings has to be read while keeping Procopius's bias in favor of his employers in mind, you have to go the other way with the anecdota. There is gossip, accusations, revelations about the very uppermost crust of Roman society, very much including the emperor and empress, some of it bordering on the pornographic. Procopius may have intended it to only be circulated around a small group of his friends, or stipulated that it couldn't be published until after his death, since if it ever came to light, the consequences for him would have been dire indeed. I'll be using both as we work through the century, and I will try my best to note when a tidbit comes from the secret history, just so we can keep our biases straight. I've seen Procopius called the last Roman historian, because he's the last of the historians who followed the tradition of earlier writers like Polybius and Thucydides. Procopius wants to tell a good story, most of all. The detailed and colorful description of the Vandal's battle against Cabion, for example, comes from his work. His histories are secular in their focus and aimed at an educated and skeptical audience. He wrote in Attic Greek, the same dialect that Plato had written in, so it's formal and obsolete in daily life, but would have been familiar to his audience. Like Ammianus Marcellinus, who we met back in the day, he writes about events that he himself has experienced directly, along with recounting the work of his predecessors. His histories are readable, and like a lot of Greek and Roman writers, much more relatable than the medieval authors who would come after them. The triumph of Christianity and the death of secular civil society in the West meant that most writers of history were churchmen, and all their work is intended to demonstrate the workings of God's plan in human history, sometimes to point out the shortcomings of their own rulers by comparison to the brave and upright men of the past. 
With Procopius, especially when reading the wars and the secret history side by side, we get a gorgeous, textured, three-dimensional view of the people and struggles of the 6th century. We'll talk some more about the other sources, because, of course, Procopius couldn't be everywhere, as they come up. Now, having set the table, next episode, we're going to introduce the bowling ball that will be dropped right into the middle of it all. Emperor Justinian will rise to power, and his character and his ambitions will be our subject. And no, I'm not sure how I'm going to get it all into one episode. So, listen next time to see if I can pull it off, I guess. Until then, take care. <laughs>